Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Olga Kane of Synthesis, a quantitative hedge fund that uses alternative data with its investment strategies. As a sourcer and buyer of alternative data, Olga has a long history in the sector and she provides a powerful overview into what works and what doesn't, including some very useful advice for alternative data providers on how to make their products as attractive as possible to hedge funds like Synthesis. I began by asking Olga about her background in finance and how she first came across alternative data. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so I started my career on the sell side, and that was a long time ago. Uh, and it just happened that I focused even back then on work in providing and selling uh, direct market access to algorithmic traders. Uh, but that was like early 2005. And back then, obviously, there was no machine learning. There was no big data was much simpler algorithms. And quite frankly, uh, people on the sell side kind of looked down at that that segment of that, that client segment, uh, so quants were not as cool as they are right now. And then I spent. <laughs> what what and, does a just uh-huh. just very in very very oh. simple terms? What does a what does a basic algorithm before big data look like? It was more like a basic if then kind of algorithm based on mm-hmm. analyzing price and volume data. Um, and I'm not trying to say there were they were like bad algorithms. Like obviously they worked back then, uh, but I'm just saying they were not as sophisticated because uh, and they were not as related to alternative data because there was no alternative data obviously back then. For sure. Uh, okay. So but, and it would be so it would be very traditional traditional data focus. So for example, if the price goes down such and such, then buy because uh, every right. time that that's happened in the in that stock in that market, then it's been a buy signal. So that's what we should do. Type thing. Uh, sort of like yeah, like moving averages and that kind of uh, uh, technical analysis uh, automated. Uh, yeah, and then I moved to uh, to a buy side, and I spent a few years in different roles in a very traditional hedge fund. Where I was, for example, when I was doing trade execution, I had a Bloomberg terminal, I had a uh, a phone, and relationship with sell side. So it was like a very traditional um, hedge fund. And then I started raising capital for the hedge fund, and I had a chance to. Uh, to connect with some investors, including institutional investors. And as we are, you know, speaking about quants, uh, I heard a lot from investors that they would say, we don't look at quants. We co- we consider all kinds of strategies, but we don't look at quants because they're black boxes and they're really hard to understand. Uh, but then uh, s- somewhere around 2012, 2013, um, it became kind of hard. People started getting disappointed in hedge funds and it became kind of hard um, to be in a hedge fund business on the traditional fundamental side. Um, and when I <clears throat> joined... Because... because um, was, it a pati- was it a particularly difficult time? Uh, it was just... A, yeah, it was just investors' interest, investors' appetite for hedge funds of a certain type. Uh, at least for a hedge fund, I, I work for like a multi-strategy traditional hedge fund. 
Um, I imagine I imagine 2008 was great for the hedge funds who got it right and not so great for the ones who missed it. I would say, yeah, 2008 was hard. I think 2009 was great for hedge funds. Like even just being long was uh, that was pretty uh, that was pretty good year for hedge funds. So right after the crisis, it was pretty, you know, everything was um, uh, recovering. And then it kind of became uh, become became not as great. At the same time, I started noticing as I moved back to the sell side and I was building a platform like emerging managers platform um, slash capital introduction. And we were focusing specifically on quantitative hedge funds because we noticed that uh, we had a broker dealer clients, uh, a few teams, quantitative teams uh, that were really, really good at making money, uh, but they didn't necessarily understand how to build a business of asset management. And that's what the, the whole idea of the platform was. And so I started looking at quants and I thought to myself, that's probably the, the future of the investment management business. And that's probably a great, um, you know, subsector of asset management um, the good business to be in. And I started educating myself um, about quantitative trading, about uh, data analysis. And it's been quite a learning curve. I can definitely relate. Sure. To the, yeah, I can definitely relate to those hedge funds that are now just starting using alternative data and building data programs within their traditional uh, research. Uh, it, it takes quite some time and effort. So when you started looking into this in 2012, you're saying is when you're like, this is this is the future. And so um, I, need mm -hmm. to, I need to get involved. I was speaking to a, a company called Sesam um, mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that uh, Sylvain Forte was saying that um, around that time was when he created Sesam. And he said there are a lot of companies such as Eagle Alpha as well, another one, um, which were at that time, basically doing sentiment analysis of Twitter. So there was a kind of, there was a fledgling alternative data type, which a lot of people tried to do. And then it kind of expanded from there. Um, what was the, what was the, when you were getting into this, was alternative data, were you aware of that as a thing or were you looking at more traditional quant strategies? Uh, I wasn't aware of what it was. So first, when I was first uh, told by my colleagues that they want to start looking at alternative data and they asked me to help with data sourcing, I had no idea what alternative data was. And I started looking it up and there was nothing there. Uh, there was very few or, or no conferences or uh, panel discussions about alternative data. There was no websites where, um, you know, with lists of data vendors. Uh, there was nothing. I didn't quite understand what alternative data was. And like intuitively, I thought, well, the word alternative means something that is new or different. That is probably just another very quantitative concept, very new concept that I need to learn. So the phrase, the phrase was around. Were you, were you hearing the phrase? Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe not that, uh, maybe it wasn't that popular as it is right now, but yes, it was around. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, what, what's uh, what's interesting is as I started looking, um, you know, digging deeper into this concept and trying to understand alternative data, I realized that this concept is not new at all. In fact, it kind of made me thinking about, uh, you know, CFA code of ethics and uh, the definition of material public information, non-material, non-public information, and something that is referred to as mosaic theory. Now, mosaic theory is obviously what it means is that if you 
put together different types of non-material information. And then when you put it together, you create this kind of puzzle that makes you come to a conclusion and like a strong trading signal that is perfectly okay, that is perfectly legal. Um, and so it makes you a beautiful, a be- beautiful and lucrative picture. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, and alternative data is nothing but non-material, non-public information. And that is important to understand and to not expect that alternative data signal by itself will be strong enough to, you know, to build um, a viable strategy around it. However, if it is considered in the context of, you know, other types of information or big data, then it can be very helpful, actually. It can, you know, for sure. it can create that puzzle, that, that big picture that will uh, lead to alpha generating strategy. Absolutely. So you were you were working in a hedge fund and you were thinking that quantum tech and quantum and, you know, quantitative strategies is the answer and data. So you that you began to um, educate yourself on it. Did you bring that the, the, the concepts and the ideas into the hedge fund or did you did you have to go elsewhere in order to integrate it into your day to day? Well, so synthesis team, um, they actually it's a team of brilliant people mathematicians, uh, they uh, have background in high frequency trading. So the team I work with, um, they, they knew how to analyze data, and they started, you know, their business by analyzing price and volume data. So we had a a great like in house framework for data analysis. And the idea was that if we bring in different data sets, alternative data, for that matter, then we can use that same technology, that same pipeline, and that same research framework to analyze those data sets and build uh, an investment strategy by combining different signals from uh, different data sets. And so my role uh, in data sourcing was identifying and you know bringing bringing in those new data sets. So this is at Synthesis, which is which is where you now work. And yes. you were so that's that's your job is to is to find the data to feed into the into the kind of engine, feed into the monster, <laughs> which um, which crunches the numbers. Yes, that's a big part of my my job. Okay, so you've been doing data sourcing and strategy since um, since kind of twenty fifteen or so, or, or maybe before. How has the available potential data changed over that time? That's a great question. Uh, it's been so the, the industry of alternative data and just uh, data buying and selling in general, um, it's a very new industry. And, you know, within those few years, I uh, observed that evolution of that industry. Like I said, when I started looking at alternative data, there was not that many sources of information or, you know, sources of those um, alternative data providers. And I remember back then, there was a business model of intermediaries. There were just advisors who would connect buyers and sellers of data. And that was their entire business model. They charge for it. I don't think it's a viable business model right now because there's so many data sets out there. And I think data vendors became much more knowledgeable about, you know, selling, promoting their products, uh, proactively reaching out to data buyers like myself. Uh, so um, what I'm trying to say is, my main focus kind of switched from trying to find as many data sets as possible to trying to filter and sift through 
a, a number of data products uh, that are, that are available and that are like I don't practically I don't even practically look for data sets anymore. But I have like such a, such an extensive incoming pipeline of data vendors, and they are very good at, at marketing themselves to you. Uh, so if you're if you're trying to sift, then what are you sifting for? What's the what's the um, what's the spark that you're looking for? Well, in our particular use case, uh, we focus more on the technical characteristics of data rather than a type of data. So we are pretty much agnostic uh, to um, in terms of what what kind of data that is. The funds focus is it is it um, is it defined regionally or sectorially or is it uh, where is it are you constrained at all by by that? It's defined regionally. We focus on the U.S. equity market, uh, but this is a statistical arbitrage that is uh, a very uh, very diverse diversified portfolio. We trade thousands of names, uh, so the answer is no. We don't focus on certain sector or certain industry. This is a very diversified portfolio, and for that reason, what is important for us is that a data set is uh, should cover. A pretty extensive uh, have, should have a pretty extensive coverage. Should cover at least um, a few hundreds of names, because otherwise it doesn't make sense for us to purchase a data set that only covers five to six names, because we have thousands mm-hmm. of names in our portfolio. Another important feature for us of a data set is to have a sufficient historical sample, and here's what this is important. Here's why this is important, because um, in our research process, we use machine learning. And machine learning, a lot of times, is being accused of overfitting, which is a fair concern. It is prone to overfitting. And in order to avoid that... Just quickly, uh-huh. just quickly, because that's kind of a data, data science term. Uh, overfitting is essentially where the model uh, reads too much into the data and creates the truths that only really exist in the data set that it's been fed. So it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to read across from that to like a universal truth that would work on another data set. So mm-hmm. overfitting is like, yeah. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And the, the way to avoid it or to minimize the probability of uh, such um such thing as overfitting is to test out of sample, right? Is to add data that machine has not been trained on, uh, trained on, and then mm. and then test uh, an out, something that is called out of sample testing, right? And mm. to actually ensure that uh, th- that kind of uh, back testing, we need a sufficient uh, historical sample, and that what sufficient means really varies depending on the um, um, on the specific hedge fund and their process and for, for example we currently work with data sets where at least five years of historical data is available which makes it problematic to work with certain data sets because a lot of those alternative data products are relatively new or what happens a lot of times is that the product is not new and the company has been around, but they took them some time to figure out how to properly structure their format and they made some changes. And so if you look at the consistent format of the data, they only have, say, a couple of years, right? And so we're probably not going to be testing this kind of product. 
so you're if you're building a strategy for example let's mm -hmm. say you're you're training a model on three years of alternative data maybe alongside traditional data uh and extracting a signal from that and if you do that then you also need another two years just to make sure that um that the the pattern that you've extracted from the last three years is is not just it's just it's not just in that three years that you've been you've trained the model on it also will so you'll use the previous two years to prove potentially that it will carry on for the next two years does that does that make sense yes in very simplified terms that's what it is uh in other words um that's historical sample is the availability of that long enough historical sample is super important for a use case that relies on backtesting that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, data sets without a sufficiently long uh, history are no good because for some use cases for, for different investment strategies that don't rely that heavily on backtesting, they may work with data with one year of history or less than one year of history. Uh, but for our purposes, that is another uh, technical parameter that is uh, that we've filtered based on. So, um, can we break it down in terms of the use? Is is synthesis a purely alternative data focused hedge fund, or would it be a combination of traditional data and alternative data? And if the latter, would you be able to distinguish how much is traditional, how much is non traditional, percentage wise, or anything like that? Uh, it's really hard to uh, to uh, distinguish between a really because it really depends on your definition of alternative data. But to answer your question, uh, we use all kinds of uh, big data, um, and we, I mean, we're not claiming that we specifically focus on alternative data, uh, but we want to explore as many data sets as possible as long as they fit our parameters that I just mentioned. And as long as they fit our internal research process, uh, but that being said, we do use more traditional um, traditional data sets like price and volume data, like fundamentals, like uh, sell side analyst estimates. Something that people don't usually refer to as alternative data, but the essence of those data sets are very similar. Mm. With, um, with, as you say, your kind of mosaic, you're building the picture by introducing more data, more alternative, mm -hmm. more, more different kinds of data sets around perhaps like a specific ticker or, or something like that. Uh, is, that, is, that like, is that a case of um, the more the merrier in that the more data sets, as long as it's true data, um, the more data of different types that you include, the better your results are going to be? Or is there a risk that you introduce something which which turns negative for the model? Um, well, it's, it's not as simple as the more the merrier. It's more like every single data set that we are testing, uh, that the testing process is actually very comprehensive and it takes some time, takes a, a lot of work. And while testing this data set, we are actually estimating return on investments. And then we look at the performance of the data set of, in the context of our portfolio. And another important thing to keep in mind is that a data library is not something that you build once and just leave it as is, right? 
over time, uh, the performance of different data sets, um, it changes. The reason it changes is because the, the entire structure of our data library changes and getting back to our idea of, of a mosaic theory. You know, maybe if we add more data, then some of the existing data sets will start perform, performing differently. And some data sets, they just stop performing over time or start performing not well enough to justify the price. So this is an ongoing mm. effort to make sure that it's not just as many data sets as possible, but to make sure that every single data set still brings that value to justify the price of uh, data itself and what it takes to maintain that data feed. So it doesn't necessarily have a detrimental effect on the model, but the detriment is the price that you're going to have to keep paying on an ongoing basis to 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 keep buying in that data data stream. And if it stops having predictive value, then that's just wasted money, essentially. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's important to keep the cost base like reasonable. And it's interesting sure. about that uh, data price. Well, uh, alternative data is expensive. That's no question about it. For the most part, it's very expensive. Uh, but it's really like hard to say whether the price can be justified without that comprehensive testing of the data set and without some understanding of return of investment on investment uh, on this data set. Sometimes the data set that is more expensive, it brings more value. And so on this value adjusted basis, it is not that expensive. And another data set that may, may be you know lower may have lower price, uh, but doesn't bring any value. There's no point in paying for it. So the best way, I imagine, to test whether it has value is to integrate a sample of this data set into your model, crunch it, see if it, you know, as you say, backtest it, see if mm -hmm. it creates more alpha. Um, so that's the ideal. First question, will a data provider give you like a like a free sample, like a, I don't know, like a, a one-week trial or something? Um, and secondly, will the... Um, what are the external signifiers? What's your, what are the clues that you have when you're looking at data sets before you've received a sample? What what are the what are the signs that this is going to be valuable? This is going to be worth it. What 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 do you look for in a data set? Mm -hmm. Well, like I said, we are looking um, we're looking for certain technical uh, technical characteristics of the data set. There's no way to tell before we. Uh, will perform this comprehensive testing and back test. There's no way to say whether data is valuable or not, uh, but we can at least say whether this data fits our process or not. So it has a coverage, mm -hmm. if the coverage is there, the history is there, uh, if the, you know, the delivery schedule is consistent, if we have uh, all the documentation, um, if there was no like major changes um, in their approach on the history, that chances are this data set may work and then we'll proceed with this comprehensive testing and as for availability of samples and historical data uh well at least alternative data vendors they should understand that they have to provide this free of charge here's why well first of all you can't trade on historical data right and if they provide me with a, a historical sample free of charge like how do I make money out of it? There's no way, right? I can't really take advantage of it. The only, so they probably should look at it as we look at, say, marketing material, like a marketing presentation. That is something that gives me an idea as a data buyer, whether or not this data is actually usable or suitable for a process. Should they just make it available online for anyone? They should just make it downloadable on their websites, their, their historical data? 
Uh, not necessarily, because most, uh, you know, most vendors, they require NDAs and, you know, all kinds of, I'm not saying they need to put it out there for, like, for everyone. I'm just saying when they work with a data buyer like myself, they have to understand the use case enough. For example, in our case, without backtesting, there's no way for us to even say whether the data set is has any value for us whatsoever so there is no way i will buy this data set and pay to this data vendor without doing back testing and so when a data vendor withholds this historical sample and wants to charge for it it's the same thing as charging for i'm going to show you my uh, my marketing presentation but i'm going to charge you for that that's sure uh, yeah that doesn't make sense have you have you had has that has that happened a lot? Have you have you found that you've had to educate data providers? Uh, you've has this has this come up? Uh, not at all. It's actually very rare. I can maybe recall a couple of times where data vendors were reluctant to provide historical data. Most of data vendors, and that's actually that's I think it's a great development that most of data vendors they are proactively trying to understand use cases of different types of clients, and they're being very responsive and they're working with us to like help us integrate their data products. And make them usable. What do you look for from in terms of assistance from an alternative data provider? Well, ideally, uh, we look for well-documented data sets. Uh, when the documentation is there and there's no inconsistencies in a historical sample, we may not even contact data vendor. We'll just proceed with backtesting and then we'll proceed with contract negotiation. Uh, but that is actually rare, unfortunately. And a lot of times we find something, some inconsistencies um, in historical uh, historical data, and then we reach out to the data vendor and try to understand why why that happened, or uh, you know, amount inconsistencies or data quality issues. We can find like mapping issues, which is very important, and we'll probably get back to them. Like uh, get back to that. Um, what I'm talking about is uh, mapping to tickers or any other security identifiers. That might be an issue. Uh, some restatements uh, in the history, uh, point in time history, like those kind of questions. Uh, we have like more often than not, we have um, this kind of questions, and we go back and forth with the data vendor. And of course, we appreciate you know like prompt answers to our questions. I imagine there can be some some friction between the concept of cleaning in terms of a alternative data provider which provides the rawest form of its data um, uh, versus the the alternative data provider which will clean it by filling in missing values and making the assumptions to make it a bit more usable. Um, I can imagine from your perspective, uh, someone who cleans it, that'll be easier for you to use, but you might lose some of the value and perhaps you would make different assumptions if you were cleaning it yourself. So do you have a preference as to whether you prefer m more raw, less cleaned, or would you would you always appreciate if someone cleans, cleans the data for you? We appreciate when someone cleans the data for us uh, because just because working with the completely raw data um, it's just quite expensive because you need to you need to do the work for data vendor and then you know uh, we and I would say most of investment managers just don't have the internal capacity to do that. On the other hand, it's very important to find this uh, uh, the gold middle because um, some vendors they go as far as to create signals, to create features, and to basically try to do our, our job for us. 
and that's that is not helpful so we try to avoid products that are completely processed by data vendor and where they basically provide you with like ready to use uh, trading signals uh, and they don't provide like underlying data that happens uh, but we try to avoid this kind of data sets you mentioned earlier that you feel the um, the market is moving away from it. Used, there used to be a business model in in kind of broking data sets from one mm-hmm. to the other. So do you see the market as being broadly a much, it's becoming almost more separated rather than more commoditized? Like it's becoming, it's almost, it sounds like it's almost becoming a less developed market rather than, because usually if you would expect a market to mature, then you'd expect it to become smoother and everything to become a little bit more centralized. Are you, you're seeing it kind of disintegrating a bit? Uh, no, not at all. I actually see uh, it's becoming more centralized because if you look at uh, some of the acquisitions that we've seen on the market and also some of the bigger players um, in the data um, in, in the data space, like some uh, big data companies uh, like Bloomberg, uh, they're actually actively looking at alternative data. And it makes a lot of sense for them to, um, you know, to start onboarding those data sets on their platforms. Not only is just a shopping window to just resell and use their distribution channels, but that too is, is very helpful. Uh, but also enhancing those data sets. Getting back to that, uh, to that issue of data mapping, that is super important because, especially for a quant use case, how are you supposed to use data if you can't map it to to, uh, to tradable securities, right? Um, so that makes a lot of sense from operational and technical standpoint, but also from the business standpoint. So it is. I I I do see some consolidation in the industry. Mm. And are you? Do you? I mean, from where you're sitting in the market, do you see that as a positive or a negative thing? In that, are you a little bit? Are you, might you be a little bit wary if everything became available on Bloomberg that it would stop being hard to get hold of, and so not a place for a you know a highly powered hedge fund like like yourselves? Um, well, from the my you know. If I'm being selfish, like to me, what's important is that the data is available to high quality and the price is reasonable. And again, when I say reasonable, I don't necessarily mean the lowest price possible. I mean um, that the value that data brings would justify the price and that's all that matters. Um, and obviously, like quality of, of client service and client support. Uh, but in general, just a mere fact that it will be on the platform of a bigger company, I don't think that's a big issue for a data buyer. Okay. So the, the fact that it becomes easier doesn't mean that almost by definition you have to then go and find the new thing. Like you've got to leave that behind and go and find whatever is the new the new hard thing to use. It's um, it, it doesn't work like that. If, if you're talking about uh, like crowdedness and the issue of yeah. the, the... Right. Right. Yeah, I, I, I hear that a lot, that people say, okay, so this data set is available to too many people, like too many players in the market. That means that it's not, that it's not usable, it's not interesting. But if you think about it, uh, the most obvious data set out there is price and volume data, right? Uh, is it unique? Well, not at all. It's available to like everyone, literally every single investment manager uses it. But does it mean it's overcrowded or it's like irrelevant and useless? 
right? So it's not a data sets that are overcrowded, the signals that are overcrowded. Um, and so the answer is probably no, it's, it's not about whether or not an alternative data set is available. It's about whether it's still working. You know, getting back to our process, like I said, it's very important to um, to always audit your data library and look how look at how uh, specific data sets perform. If it stops performing, you know, it doesn't matter how exotic this data set is. And if it doesn't stop performing, it keeps performing really well, uh, you know, it might be available to other players. It doesn't make it doesn't make it less less relevant and less useful useful. Nice. That's good. It suggests there's a there's a there's a lot of future to come for it. Um, the let's go back if we can just towards um, the specific uh, alternative data kind of sectors and the types of alternative data you can get. Are there? Do you have any have any preferences? Have you got any favorites? Have you got any areas where you used, there used to be value and and you see less value now in terms of you know credit cards versus geolocation versus satellite data versus you know that that kind of breakdown. Mm -hmm. Well, like I said, it's more about suitability um, because, uh, you know, speaking about uh, like satellite, uh, satellite images, data sets, most of them, they don't really work for us because the coverage is not wide enough. And so that that is not to say those data sets are no good. They're just not relevant for for our use case, but for some other for some other funds, maybe some more concentrated or funds with more concentrated portfolios, those might be great data sets to work with. Um, so I probably I, I obviously I can share like what kind of uh, data sets uh, bring more value in our specific portfolio, uh, but I can mention a couple of uh, types of data that I find uh, interesting and I think they have a lot of potential. Um, when when alternative data thing just started a few years ago, uh, one of the most popular type of alternative data was uh, market sentiment, which makes a lot of sense, right? We, we kind of want to know what market participants are thinking and doing because uh, ultimately, you know, they move market prices. The problem with sure. the sentiment was, you know, people were scraping like Twitter, uh, blogs, forums and all that stuff Reddit, uh, yeah yeah right exactly but the problem with this data it was like super messy there's fake news concerns and all that stuff but another problem is that you know you and i we can go online and say whatever it doesn't necessarily carry that much weight what carries mm. more weight is is when people put their money where their mouth is and that would be trading flow right and so, especially now, uh, as retail traders, I'm sure you've seen it in the news that the retail traders are now kind of dominating uh, the U.S. market, especially Robinhood. Uh, right, Robinhood. And after most of the large brokerages, they uh, they started offering free trading. If you look at uh, less liquid, uh, like just in general, cheaper uh, penny stocks, that's where uh, retail investors actually move the market. And even like in, in, in more expensive, larger stocks as well. Uh, so I'm saying that uh, retail trading flow is uh, one of the interesting types of alternative data. That, be, uh, that being said, um, it's not that easy to obtain. Like RobinTrack was super, super popular among hedge funds, but now it's, it's no longer available. 
Um, I personally think that at some point, um, some of the data, some of the uh, players, maybe brokerages or data venues, they will figure out a way to offer this type of data. And I'm sure it's going to be in demand. Um, but for now, it's not that easy to, uh, to obtain this kind of data set. I seem to keep talking about them. I was talking to Matei about them last week. The BMLL Technologies, a company that I that I uh-huh. had on a, a few weeks back, and they essentially take all the trading data of a of, a, of an exchange and um, cr- like break it, crunch it down to a much more manageable data set, and then sell that um, on a on an ongoing basis. So you can get you know yesterday's trading at a very and all the buys and all the sells and you know all the rest type thing. Um, so is that the kind of thing you're talking about or, or the specific Robin Hood kind of, um, that kind of trader is, is more of interest? Right. Well, uh, so when I say retail flow, I'm referring to specifically, uh, retail traders or orders. Okay. So the less sophisticated traders, what, what are they doing? Right. Like less sophisticated, uh, specifically retail traders, but I'm familiar with B- BMLL and uh, what they're offering, uh, I find really interesting as well, because like I said, um, price and volume data, it's not necessarily, you know, like people, people talk about alternative data because it's like new or like exotic data that nobody has access to, as that means that it's superior to the more traditional data. Uh, I really don't think so. In fact, in some of the traditional data sources, including price and volume data, uh, with the right process in place, uh, you know, it's it's, it's very um, possible to find some alpha signals. Uh, one of the examples, I think, what is uh, like an interesting type of data sets would be uh, auction imbalances, not necessarily prices themselves, but, you know, uh, open and close auction imbalances. Okay, cool. Um, and so that's, so that's obviously very much... Um, an interest in kind of what people are doing in the market. So that's a very kind of markets focused type types of data. Um, is there, so that you, you have a preference of that over kind of what's happening in the markets on the whole over, you know, um, data about, um, uh, you know, hotels or even a specific hotel chain and how that's doing. You, 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 you prefer to squint your eyes and see the, the bigger picture that's happening in the markets on the whole. Is that, is that the case? Uh, it is the case, but it's only because it's actually predicated on the use case. And in our case, uh, like I said, our strategy is statistical arbitrage with a highly diversified portfolio. So we, we want to look at data sets that cover as many names as possible. Um, so if we look at a data set or on a, like a specific hotel chain, it doesn't really make much sense to us because, um, sure. you know, how many data sets will we need to look at? It's just not efficient whatsoever. Um, and um, however, for other for uh, other types of hedge funds, for hedge funds, probably fundamental hedge funds with more uh, concentrated portfolios or for funds that focus on specific industry, or a specific sector, that might be a different story. Like I said, it's all about the use case. Maybe if they specifically focus on hospitality uh, sector, then for them, that would be super important to have like super granular data on a specific hotel chain, on a specific type of, uh, um, you know, customers. But it's just a different, it's just a different uh, use case. And for that reason, I don't like when I talk about alternative data, I try not to generalize because something that works for us 
is not necessarily the best choice for a fundamental hedge fund that just started using implementing alternative data in their process or a private equity fund for that matter. Um, and something that doesn't work for us, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a, it is a bad data vendor or it's a useless uh, data product. I hear you, Olga, and um, I'm afraid I'm now going to ask you to generalize about alternative data by asking what is the future of uh, that you see? What, what's, the, what's the most exciting thing? Um, uh, can you see ahead as to, as to uh, what the latest developments? We talked a little bit about, you know, like large players like Bloomberg um, mm -hmm. centralizing the market maybe a little bit and, and, mm -hmm. and sweeping up some of the smaller, smaller players and providing an outlet. Um, is there, are there any other kind of, you know, um, crystal ball views you, you might have? I actually think that, uh, this industry of buying and selling data is the new data economy, I think is just at a very, very early stage It's just starting. And I see a lot of opportunities for emerging data vendors, for data owners and beyond investment management, even beyond the financial industry. Uh, data is just mm. this new commodity that, you know, that is, uh, of, of, we won't be able to even do businesses, like any kind of businesses without um, some sort of an exposure to data science. And so I think that's uh, like working with data and being able to collect it and uh, productize it and to sell it. I think that's a tremendous business opportunity for smaller vendors and for larger uh, data companies. As for data buyers in the investment management space, I think there's also a lot of opportunity and we also at a very early stage, I think more uh, active investment managers, uh, hedge funds and, and mutual funds and more traditional funds and ETFs will be using um, alternative data and just big data, big data sets in general in their processes. Um, I think there will be more hedge funds, uh, quant hedge funds or like synthesis focusing on big data and specifically about alter uh, specifically on alternative data. I actually heard of uh, recent launches of uh, quant funds specifically focused on alternative data. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great, uh, great industry to be in. And I think that's a great opportunity uh, that lies ahead. Fantastic. Well, that's great to hear. Um, Olga, thank you so much. That was really interesting and really, really useful um, just to get a real an insight into into how someone like you uses alternative data and a, and a, and a kind of privileged opportunity. So um, thank you very much. Uh, thank you.